Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Marcus Grodi, your host on this weekly program in which we we pause for an hour. I invite a friend to, to join us for this examination of Scripture. And the, the idea is that uh, one of the key ways that we become deeper in relationship to our Lord Jesus Christ and His Church is through a deep study of Scripture, as well as a deep a deepness in the history of the church and our faith. And my, what I mean by that, of course, is that we study the, the Word of God in context and make sure that we're not proof texting, we're not reading only through the glasses of our individualistic traditions or individualistic experiences, but that we're trying to hear what the Lord is saying through His church. For we recognize that it is through the church that we've received the Word of God not the other way around. And our guest today actually comes at that from a very unique perspective. Brian Robbins is a convert from Judaism. So even as I say that that we receive the Word of God through the church, I'm not just talking New Testament. We're talking the big picture, the whole, the whole journey. And so he'll join me in a moment. Uh, he's chosen as his text, Luke 23, it's the verse about the uh, the section about the other criminals that were crucified with, with Jesus. And we'll look at that verse in just a moment. Let me tell you a little bit about Brian, though, before he joins us. Brian Robbins is an attorney in New York City, currently lives in Westchester County, New York, with his wife Kim and seven children, five natural children, and two children uh, for whom Kim and Brian have become legal, legal guardians. Brian was born into and raised in the Jewish faith before coming to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in 2005. While baptized into an evangelical-slash-Pentecostal community, Brian's prayer and study ultimately drew him to the Catholic Church. Brian has a particular interest in and has been a featured speaker at various denominational churches and fellowship groups with respect to the Jewish roots of Christianity and and. Uh, Brian we, uh, and I have had a chance in our preparation for the Journey Home program, which won't broadcast for a number of weeks, to, for me to hear his journey. And I strongly encourage you when, uh, to hear his entire uh, presentation of his journey. I think it's going to be April 11th, Monday, April 11th. So mark that on your calendars, especially those of you that have Jewish friends or background to listen to his story. Very powerful. He's going to uh, review it in a moment, just briefly. But let me read the text that he chose. You know, you often on the journey home, uh, on Deep in Scripture program, excuse me, I have the guest choose a verse they never saw, and often that's in relationship to the beauty of the Catholic Church specifically. In this case, Brian has chosen this passage because it was one of the things that he saw in his journey from Judaism into Christianity. It's Luke chapter 23. Verse 39 through 40. Let me read it. We'll take a break, and then Brian will join us. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. You're listening to Deep in Scripture, come to you, coming to you by the Coming Home Network International, and you're hearing us on EWTN. Global Catholic Radio Network. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, 
you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Gerdai's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Gerdai's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Again, this is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Brian Robbins. Hello, Brian. Hi, how are you? It's great to be here. Thank you for coming all the way over here from the East Coast into the the central reality of our nation, the heart of our nation. (laughs) I'm enjoying it. It's great. (laughs) It's good to have you here. Uh, Brian, I know that you were able to share in more detail on the Journey Home episode, Mm -hmm. uh, your journey, but I think it's important that the audience right now knows where you're coming from. Sure. Well, laying a very, at least some foundation, I was raised in the Jewish faith, as you alluded to earlier in the introduction, and I came to faith in Christ as Lord and Messiah in 2005 uh, in a somewhat dramatic fashion, um, which was very exciting, very frightening in some sense, some sense, but very, you know, heartwarming, and it was a life changer in every, every way, shape, and form of the word. Um, and that journey then ultimately led me to the Catholic Church. Um, but one of the things that I most immediately focused on when I came to faith is, my God, what does this mean? Yeah. Uh, having raised in a Jewish family, and, and most of my family, that's an understatement, um, are therefore Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. What does it mean, what is the message for those who have not yet come to know that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah? What hope is there? Well, what is my role? What is my responsibility? What does Scripture tell me? Uh, And this verse that you just read from Luke was a very powerful one to me. It was was very thought-provoking. It didn't end there, but it began a study. Um, Because I believe that every verse in Scripture, and certainly every story in Scripture, is there for a purpose. Uh, There there are no accidents. There are no coincidences. Why is it that Jesus is crucified next to two thieves, obviously to fulfill the prophecy from the Old Testament, but why is it that he is crucified next to two thieves and why do we have the foil where one thief accepts him and acknowledges him for Lord and Savior and is saved? That day will be in paradise, and the other is not. You, you point out an, a, su- a supremely important issue in Scripture study that I think you, because of your Jewish background, can give so many of the rest of us help, especially those of us like myself that come from a more evangelical Protestant background. An example of no needing to know the background to understand the text. One of the best examples that I think of in Scripture is the story, the parable where Jesus talks about the uh, I can't remember the title of it, but where this this cruel or apparently um, supposedly um, uh, not very good businessman is going to fire his steward. Mm-hmm. And the steward proceeds to go tell everybody to reduce their bill. Right. And then he gets approved by the boss. It doesn't make sense. It looks like you're telling people that you can you can cheat to get right. by. When you know the background where the the bill collector made his money by always adding a percentage onto what the people really owed, that what he was doing was it was a win-win. He was telling the people, you don't owe me my part. Just pay the boss what you owe him. So in the end, the boss was got his money. Mm-hmm. The people didn't have to pay the extra. So it was a win-win for the servant, and that's why he was rewarded. When you know the background, the parable makes sense. That's a bit of what you're saying here in this passage. When you know the background, the crucifixion of two men next to Jesus wasn't just a mere accident. Right. Yeah, and it tells a very important lesson, I think, um, that it's telling us that there's hope. Now, somebody might say, well, wait a second. Does that mean you should wait to the, re- to the end of your life to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I'd say absolutely not. And we'll talk about that in a little yep. bit. Absolutely not. But what it does tell me is that there, there's hope. So where else, how can we unpack this 
So when okay. I read these verses, I, I said, you know, I, looking through Scripture, what else seems to be relevant? This seems to be an act of mercy. This seems to be telling me that at the end of our lives, at least at the end of this particular individual's life, he was given the opportunity, and through baptism of desire, I would say, right. to, to be saved through faith in Christ. But what does that mean for Jews and my, my people who do not yet, don't know the Savior? Well, interestingly, elsewhere in Scripture we're told that God caused Israel in large part to have eyes but not see and ears but not hear. Uh, you'll see that in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. And that's uh, reiterated in Romans. Paul quotes the same scripture. So now I have God who is supernaturally in God's sovereignty for his own purpose, um, causing not all, there's always a remnant of that believers, but causing in large part a group of people not to be able to see and not to be able to hear. And yet there are verses in Scripture that make it clear that we need to confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior and accept him in order to be saved. How do we reconcile that? Mm-hmm. Is that thief on the cross telling me something? Um, before I entered the Catholic Church and even understood that there was a concept of invincible ignorance, and I'd like to spend some time with you mm-hmm. talking about what that I think that is. You have is. to tell what the, those big words mean exactly. for some of our folk, And yeah. what it is and what it isn't, okay? <laughs> exactly. Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. But before I'd even gotten there and delved into that, I really struggled with this verse. I said, well, you know, how does that work? Did, did the Calvinists have it right, the light switch approach, yeah. that says, you know, the moment you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're saved, and if you don't, you don't, and if you've never heard his name, you're kind of out of luck because there's no opportunity yeah. to know. Um, or is there other, some other means of revelation? Um, and then I recalled verses where Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. That was very powerful to me. John chapter 10, 27 to 29, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, that's really interesting. Jesus is calling out in a voice. Is it possible that this is an image, the thief on the cross? that for some people it happens early in life, for some people later in life, that Jesus calls out to us in his voice, mm. and we have an opportunity to, to, to be saved. After all, God also said in 1 Timothy 2.4 that he desires that all be saved. Mm. So if a God desires that all be saved and is supernaturally blinded some, or some have not had the opportunity to know who Jesus is by name, is there some opportunity for salvation? Is that possibly what's going on here with the image of the thief on the cross? Hmm. Um, one of the things that occurred to me, again, this is before you get to invincible ignorance, is that God stands outside time. So I think actually um, C.S. Lewis talked about this in Mere Christianity, and you know, it's something that I'd always felt in my heart when I read it. I, like I jumped up and down. I said, this is it. This is it. <laughs> he, you know, the time, our perception of time is linear. But to God, the Alpha and the Omega stands outside time, and everything is hap- happening simultaneously. So I started, as an early believer, started praying to my relatives who died 50, 60 years ago. And people said, well, they didn't confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, so they can't be saved. And I said, well, I pray tonight that God comes to them in the moments before their death, which to him is happening now. To me, it happened 50 years ago, <laughs> and calls out to them in their voice. Yeah and gives them the opportunity to respond to the voice. Again, reiterating, does that mean we don't evangelize now? No. I think our entire life is in preparation for getting to know God intimately. So when that voice calls out to us, it's a knowing, familiar voice, a warm voice, and we run to it rather than a strange and foreign voice that it'll be difficult to embrace. Hmm. Okay, And I think that the sacraments, I've come to believe in the Catholic Church, are building us that familiarity, that intimacy, that communion with the Holy Spirit, so that when Jesus calls out to us, we're going to run because we're going to, it's going to be a father, it's like a fatherly's call, like the father's call, brotherly call, we're going to run. But if you turn your back on the Holy Spirit and reject him over and over again, it becomes a foreign and a cold voice. Yeah, uh, this past year, uh, John Henry, Cardinal Newman was beatified, and we recognize his beautiful witness, his faithfulness in his own journey of faith, uh, taking whatever suffering came along with it. And one of the most powerful things that most people don't know or see is that when you know about John Henry Cardinal Newman, you might read his sermons or his books, but he had personal letters mm-hmm. that he was writing to friends. And the reason I bring this up, Brent, is he would tell his friends who were on the journey, don't miss this moment of grace, this moment of grace. In other words, God gives yes. 
us moments of grace, the Holy Spirit, that we respond to. It's not just a zap. Right. He predestined it and you had nothing to do with it, nor is it the more Arminian side, but it's almost all of us. But it's just the mystery of his grace reaching out, which he did to you listening to a radio station. Yes. <laughs> and, and I'm glad you said it the way you did because I don't believe it's irresistible grace. It's a very attractive grace, but we need to cooperate with it. And just as you said, it's, it's not us alone. See, it's not works alone, never gets you there. But it's not quite faith alone either, as Luther had suggested. It's as James suggested, it's faith and works. Faith without works is dead. We need to cooperate, as you know, with the Holy Spirit. And I do believe, and we chatted about this briefly um, in the other show, but, you know, Jesus said that no one comes to me unless he's been drawn by the Father. And, yeah, I understand the concept of election, but I believe we're all God's special children. He's drawing all of us. We need, and it's at various points in our life. And I believe that the more we cooperate with the grace, the more we react, the more grace is given. And that's yeah. what leads to, and it's, a, it's an ongoing process. It's not a question of, are you saved? It's, have you been saved and are you being saved? Because it's salvation, justification, and sanctification, while there's a divergence in thinking there between Protestants and, and Catholics for the most part, whereas Protestants would say it's a one-time act of justification, you're justified, eternal security, and now sanctification is you know where you're gonna end up in heaven. I think that justification and sanctification are really united. It's it's all an ongoing process. You have a moment of justification and sanctification, but both of those are ongoing processes. Hmm. And so that's, again, for different people at different points on the timeline in their lives. But there but there is hope. And, and, and in looking at this verse, then for me at least, I began to understand, and I say that very humbly because I don't fully understand Paul's <laughs> writings. In fact, Peter Warren, they were very difficult to understand, which is why I had the church, because otherwise I'll twist the words to my own destruction. But, but at least I began to understand a little bit more Paul's writings, particularly chapter 11. I was going to say, particularly that verse, it's easy for people to twist apart from the bigger picture of sacred tradition. Yes. Understanding. It, it, it is very difficult, and I would say almost impossible, to understand those verses outside the, the boundaries or understanding of sacred tradition, because they can be interpreted any number of ways in good faith today by rational people just reading the words. But Paul talks about a time in Romans 11. He's talking about the Jews. First, he's talking about the Gentiles. It's very interesting. And he says how they're grafted into the promises of Israel. And he says, well, have I cut off Israel? You know, they've broken them off. And he says, but they can be grafted back in. Interestingly, he says that at the same time, he warns the Gentile believers who are already grafted in. So they're already believers that they can be broken off through unbelief. Again, pointing to the fact that we need to stay, we need to work at our salvation, mm -hmm. as Paul yeah. said elsewhere in yeah. Fear and Trembling. But, but he is talking in Romans 11 about a time when after the full allotment of Gentiles comes in, all Israel will be saved. Now this is where I think that verse can mean a lot of different things, and, and it's, it's led to some unusual doctrines. It's led yeah. to the doctrine of dual covenant theology. Some people look at that verse in isolation and say, with respect, I would say, mm -hmm. and say, well... It says all Israel will be saved ultimately, therefore they don't need faith in Yeshua, faith in Jesus to be saved. Separate covenant. Or, is what he really is saying in Romans 11, no, 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 after the full allotment of Gentiles come in, all Israel will be saved, i.e., who's all Israel? Is he really just talking about the fact that together with the Gentiles will become the lost ten tribes of Israel who were disappeared as part of the Assyrian exile uh, never, and to disappear into the Gentile nations never to be reclaimed? but will be reclaimed with the Gentiles when the whole world is given the gospel. Um, so, you know, the doctrine of invincible ignorance worth touching upon there, because this is the Catholic doctrine. Which uh, many people are invincibly ignorant of what invincibly ignorant means. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I'll take a shot at it. You can correct me when I get it wrong. But, but, but essentially the doctrine of invincible ignorance is that we are held accountable by God to the level of revelation made available to us so that... Somebody who is in possession and knows the truth embedded within the teachings of the Catholic Church but rejects the truth is not invincibly ignorant. Mm -hmm. And so you don't get a free hall pass there and you're, you are walking away from the Holy Spirit. And the only crime, that is not, the only sin that is not forgivable according to Scripture is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that is the knowing and intentional abandonment of the desire of the Holy Spirit to commune with you. Yeah. And, and I think that happens. I think it's hard to do that, but I think it happens through mortal sin that is unforgiven and from a hardening of your heart. Um, but 
So what we know what invincible ignorance is not, somebody who knows the truth, but somebody, for example, who has never heard the name Jesus. They're living out in the bush somewhere today in deep Australia and has never heard the name Jesus. They are reacting to the level of revelation that has been made available to them. Maybe they've heard of God or they sense a God. Maybe they really know Jesus. They just don't know the name Jesus. Okay, that person is held to a different standard. Now, how do I, and and similarly, those who are supernaturally blinded from the truth. I alluded to earlier that God told us that he was going to cause Israel in his sovereignty and for his greater glory, because how great will their coming to faith be in the end times for his great glory? But in his sovereignty, he has willed that a large percentage of Jewish people will not, cannot hear and see, today at least, Jesus as Lord and Savior, and yet he desires that all be saved. So I think there, I, in my mind, start harmonizing the thief on the cross, the message that it's possible to come to know Jesus in the moments before our death, with that he desires that all be saved, with that he supernaturally blinded some, with the Catholic doctrine of invincible ignorance, which says as you really don't know, but you are finding God the way that you can. I believe Jesus will call to all of us he will reveal himself in all of his glory. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just as Moses' face shone when he came down from Mount Sinai, and Jesus, just as Jesus' face was transfigured before Moses and Elijah, who stand for the prophets, the law and the prophets, is illuminating them, I believe that in the moments before our death, he, his face is revealed. He calls our name, and we have the opportunity, you know, to embrace. Um, I, but I, I, yes. was, I was thinking about, when we think about evangelization, of someone that is seemingly either invincibly ignorant or seemingly closed by God, if you want to point a finger, which some might, to the truth, they just the walls in their life seem impossible to break through. To me, the image is is the old the Jewish uh, tale of not tale, excuse me, of, of Jericho. In other words, you keep surrounding that village with the truth, and God can break the walls down. Our job is just to walk around and blow the horns. Exactly. (laughs) With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And just as that story is a beautiful illustration, just as that story showed, they laughed at Joshua, okay? (laughs) Almost. You could hear them laughing at Joshua. We're going to walk around seven seven days, seven times. Um, But they did, And, and, and it was God who broke down those barriers. And so all we can do is we can... We can plant the, the, the good soil. I love the parable about yep. the seed, right, that falls on the fertilized soil, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and it takes root only in the fertilized soil. Our job as evangelists, and it's an important job, it is a commandment. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my commandments. And he commanded to spread the gospel to the world. I would point out, for those who believe in dual covenant theory, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But he, he yep. commanded to preach not only to, to all creation, St. Francis of Assisi preached the gospel yep. to the animals. You preach the gospel to all as a way of fertilizing the soil, recognizing that it's not our job or responsibility or our ability to actually convince anybody to believe in the gospel. It's our job to be the messengers. To tell. Yeah, to tell. All right, let's take a break. Brian, when we get back, we'll jump right into this passage. Okay. What, in fact, before we jump in, we're going to come back to it, but I, what I want to talk a little bit about is this idea that, because you just mentioned the, 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 the soils, that was the context also when Jesus said some are fulfillment of the don't hear, they have eyes but don't see, because that was in that. But the idea in our own lives, how isn't it true that it seems that God closes our ears and closes our eyes for a time until it's right, so that our lives are in a position to receive, which might have been true Mm -hmm. for these gentlemen on the cross. We'll get back to that when we come back from the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture, brought to you by the Coming Home Network International, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. 
follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Brian Robbins, former uh, brought up in the Jewish faith, convert to the church, uh, Christianity, uh, we'll put it that way, and then and then you discovered the, the Catholic Church in that. I want us to get into this passage, Brian, real quick, but I also wanted to point out, again, from something that you had mentioned earlier about this idea that God closes eyes and, and ears, and we can sometimes see that as a cold, sovereign God. Does he not care about people, when in fact that may be the most loving thing he does in people's life. I look at my own journey, and when I had my adult awakening to our Lord Jesus, and then later the adult awakening to the beauty of his church. You know, there were reasons in my life when that was the right time. Thank the Lord. What about yourself in your own journey of faith, Brian? Well, I'm certainly, it's probably true. Um, And it's a great mystery. You know, I don't know why for the first 40 some odd years of my life, because it was my early 40s when I came to faith, you know, this truth did never occur to me. You know, it's just not even something that, you know, I was, I could say truthfully I was seeking. Um, I, and so that is a great mystery to me, and things going on in my life, obviously, I trust in God implicitly yeah. in his greater purpose as to why that happened when it did. I, I do think that it, that those 40 prior years living in a totally different way from a different mindset has enriched my faith journey. <laughs> you know, so through God's wisdom, I guess I'm sure he knows what he's doing as to why that would that happen. Um, and giving you unique aspects of your witness that yeah. you may never have had. Yes. If you hadn't been through, allowed to go through some of what that, you've That's been correct. And, and by the same token, not to, to take away from somebody who is fortunate enough to be born into a faith and with a strong and vibrant faith from a very early age. It's a very different witness and it's a very different experience. And I think uh, God paints with a broad brush and he paints yeah. with very different colors. And we're all part... We're all part of the same story, but we serve different purposes. Well, and another important part of that, as you and I sit here across the table from each brand, certainly our witness to others is a part of why God brought us back. But it's also so that we might grow in union with him and you and I together. Our understanding of the faith is not individualistic. Yes. The key thing, which I think we particularly get from our Jewish roots, is that we are saved in Jesus as a part of the body. Yes. That's, isn't that very much a part of our Jewish roots? Uh, absolutely. You know, some people focus on Jesus prayed for unity in the Bible, Bible, body. Absolutely. And it's a great travesty that we don't have the unity that we yeah. should, particularly um, this tremendous splintering in the body of Christ. However, I think God smiles at diversity in the body. So we can have unity in doctrine and diversity in experience, yes. right? And I think it's spectacular that you and I have two dramatically very different backgrounds, and yet we have this common bond, yeah. a common bond in, in our belief in, in Jesus and a common bond in the church. And I think that's what made God smile. And frankly, I think you know, <laughs> I, I, the Holy Spirit is working within the entire body of Christ. It, you know, I, I absolutely believe that. And frankly, the Holy Spirit is working outside of the body of Christ right. because the Holy Spirit is acting on everybody. And again, I really believe 1 Timothy 2.4 with all my heart when it says that God desires that we'll all be saved. Yeah. It's God will equip us. We can't do it alone because of our sinful nature, but God, I trust that God will equip us in his time, what's right for us, yeah. so that we're able to make the decision to choose life. That you know, Jesus preaches, and John the Baptist preached on his behalf in his coming, choose life. Repent. It's a voluntary action. It, it, it has to be more than election. We have to be... Ha- it's not an attack on God's sovereignty. In God's sovereignty, he chose to 
be merciful and give us the choice to cooperate with him. That's how I view the scripture. Well, one of the dangers of, of sola scriptura has been an uncomfortableness with the both and side of the mysteries. Often what we see in the Calvinist perspective or even the Lutheran perspective or even the Arminian perspective, it ends up in either or. Yes. It's either the sovereign will of God and yet and not the freedom of man, or it's the freedom of man and not the sovereignty of God. As opposed to our Catholic perspective, it's a both and. There's the right. mystery of that, the beauty of the mystery. And in this passage, as we were talking about this idea of of the moment of grace in our lives that we can never know in the life of anyone else, so we surround them like the army around Jericho. Um, we have a unique moments of grace for these two men that found themselves behind Jesus, beside Jesus on this hill. Is there a particular Jewish background to this that helps us understand it? Well, there is a doctrine, and I think, I believe it's in Ezekiel, where God is telling us, he's contrasting the righteous and the wicked. And he says that the wicked man who is wicked his entire life, but at the end of his life turns to do good, he will surely be saved. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he's saying. And yet the righteous man who is good his whole life, but at the end turns wicked, will surely not. And Which Jesus himself brought back in the parable of the brothers. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, the prodigal son story as well is a very powerful illustration yep. of a very similar principle. And the other two brothers, if that's what you're alluding to, where one yeah. did the work and one did not. Go do the job. Yeah, I will, but he doesn't. But he doesn't. And the other one says, I, I won't, but he does. Right. Exactly. That's, that's a much more powerful illustration. But I, I think in some sense that is relevant to the thief on the cross. I've got two thieves on the cross. I don't know what they did in their lives. They obviously all committed crimes. One turns at the moment before death. And that's the most powerful thing. It's the last thing that he does. Um, the reason why I went to the par- uh, prodigal son, and maybe it's heavy on my mind, is, you know, it's interesting. I used to look at that parable. Prodigal son, for everybody, obviously, is the parable where um, the father and master has two sons, and, and one goes off and squanders um, his inheritance. It's the younger son who goes off and squanders the inheritance, the older son who stays behind. Uh, but then comes back and is forgiven by the father and restored to his greatness. And as the older brother left, kind of really resentful of that. I used to think that, well, um, it was the Gentiles who went off. Uh, excuse me, that it was, the, it was the, um, the, the Gentiles who stayed behind. It was the Jewish guy who went off and came back. It's, but I look at it a slightly different way. And I think you can look at it both ways. It's a beautiful thing but the parable. Yeah. But I almost realize that the older son really is, the, is Judaism because they are the ones who had the law. And you can almost hear in those in the sayings of the older son, but I stayed here this whole time and I was faithful. I stayed here and I followed the Mosaic law the whole time. I stayed with you. Whereas the Gentiles who, who, who were the younger child, they left, and then, because they were without the law, then they came back and had forgiveness. And what the untold story, they don't finish the parable, is does the older son finally break down and join the celebration and regroup, or can he not? And, uh, and, and again, that's, it's an illustration of how what you do last. You know, God said, Jesus said very mysteriously, those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. Is Israel the first to get the, the Mosaic law, but the last to get the message about salvation through the Son? <laughs> and the Gentiles, the last to get the message, but the first to get it? But notice, most importantly, he said, those who are first will be last, not those who are first will be never. And so again, yeah. it goes back to Romans 11, that God has promised that even though he has caused a supernatural veil to fall upon Israel in large part, or even not Israel, Muslims, others, who Buddhists who've never heard the name Israel, for whatever reason, has not made the gospel made available to them, that nevertheless an opportunity to come to know him will be made available to all of us. Another great story that the end of the story is left open, and that's the rich young ruler who, you know, there's one thing you lack, and it's go sell, give away, and follow me and then he walks away. Is that mm-hmm. the end of the story? Tradition, some traditions say that was Barnabas. In other words, mm-hmm. he came back and, mm-hmm. and was extremely generous. And it leaves that pause in our lives that sometimes even us, when, the, when grace touches us, uh, there's a time of reflection, examination from the standpoint of of uh, this is serious business here. It involves a change of life, not a flippant thing. 
I know you yourself, Brian, when you, you related your story, you know, you had this awakening one moment, but it took a while to, uh, as Jesus says, kind of count the costs of building the tower. It, absolutely. And in fact, I, I was just sharing this with one of your colleagues on break that, you know, the reason I chose Peter as my confirmation name, truthfully, is that I have, I was very prayerful about those, the beginning of my walk in faith. When I, I came to faith and I knew the truth, in my heart I knew the truth, but I couldn't bring myself to publicly proclaim the gospel. And it weighed heavily on my heart. Of course, Jesus says, if you're not willing to confess me before other men, then I won't confess you amongst the Father. Uh, uh, and I remember yeah, yeah. Peter having denied, you know, Jesus those three times, but the three times of forgiveness he was given by Christ. And that, you know, I, I, I was thankful that I was given enough grace ultimately to, to be able to get past those boundaries and publicly proclaim that gospel to my family and my friends and do so here. But I'm mindful of how difficult it was to do. Hmm. And I, re- it's, it's, I understand that parable of the young ruler and how difficult it would be for him to walk away from everything he knew in the worldliness to embrace, you know, embrace the Lord. The two criminals, all right. Um, They were both crucified next. The first one rails Jesus and says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, the interesting thing there, of course, is it seems like he's got some He's got some knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, what we can't tell, unfortunately, from the verses is the tone in which it was spoken. If it was ridicule, and I suspect maybe it was, but we can't tell. Um, if it is, it harkens back to Wisdom, chapter 2, which is, of course, in the Deuticanonical books, where um, in a very poignant description of, of someone who can only be Jesus Christ, the righteous one who claims to be the Son of God, and they said, if you're really the Son of God, get you know, save yourself. Okay, which ironically is virtually quoted verbatim in the gospel accounts of the Passion, when the Pharisees and others around there are mocking Jesus on the Christ and said, if you really are the Son of God, get off the cross and save yourself. And and in some sense, that's, I think, what this thief might, and again, I have to say might because right. I can't read the tone, might have been doing. Yeah, uh, you know, physician, heal thyself. It was the other rail that he would, would often get from... from uh, from those that caught it for him caught in this situation. It does remind me though of when we see people in our life that ridicule, and again we don't know the tone here, but it may be that down deep there's a seed of truth there that they're fighting against that's covered up with a whole bunch of other junk in their lives. And they're in other words, are you not the not the Christ? Well in other cases, it almost sounds like a demon speaking through the guy. I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like, other, but is it that he, he's in here, it's inside of him, this reality of who is before him, but because of everything else, he can't get through that. We know people like that in our lives. Sure, all of us do. And unfortunately, they, they, they are all colors, all races, all creeds, and all religions. And, you know, when Jesus encapsulated as the two most important commandments, love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, which, by the way, are very, right out of Judaism, that's right in Deuteronomy, okay, and the great prophet Hillel used to say the same thing. But he, he captured it, and I think he accentuated it because even though we knew it, we don't do it. Yeah. And it really is true that if you can follow those two commandments, you, by definition, are following the Ten Commandments, the moral law written in our hearts. Mm-hmm. But it's the hardest thing for us to do. And, and the, the infighting that we have within the body of Christ, you know, is, it, that's the biggest tragedy. The biggest tragedy is that, that even the best of intentions, um, we find people who, who are doing anything but love one another. We're going to take another break, Brian. The, the second thief rebuked the man and then do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation so even before he turns to Jesus and asks for the forgiveness he's talking about the assumption of fearing God and we're going to take a break but let's come back to that if you would when we come back you're listening to Deep in Scripture brought to you by the Coming Home Network International and you're hearing us on EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Mm-hmm. 
The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Brian Robbins, and we're looking at Luke 23, verses 39 through 44. It's that story, of course, of the two criminals who were hanged beside Jesus and the the, the good thief, or however that's, he's been uh, titled over the years, turns to the one who had just railed Jesus, do you not fear God? Right. Oh, well, um, I'm glad you point out that verse because we, and I say we, collectively have a tendency, particularly in the New Testament, to focus on, for lack of a better term, a one-dimensional God. Or our one-dimensional relationship with God. God is love. He certainly is, and love is, you know, given tremendous emphasis in the New Testament. But but God is multidimensional, and you know the Hebrew Scriptures tells us in the Psalms that that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, and it's not. It, it's an it's a reverent fear. It's a it's a fear, you know, like a, a father's discipline and love. So it, 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 I think fear and love go together, but the fear of God is important. We need to recognize that, not lose that as an essential part of, essential part of the teaching of the gospel. And, and so I think that's what this thief is doing here. He starts, it's very important to me that he starts, it's very interesting that he starts with, do you not fear and then remember me, have compassion, fear and compassion and I am love. I'm absolutely convinced, particularly when we look at the scandal that we in the church have experienced over the last 10, 15 years of, of, of things that shouldn't have been done by a small percentage yes. of, of men that then casts aspersion on the whole, I can't help but believe that as part of the result of the 20th century shift from fear of God to love of God, that we ended up with a shallow love of God, because can we truly love God without fearing God? Right. And to me, that is a very Jewish understanding. Yes. L- love, fear, and respect go hand in hand. And just like the commandment, honor your mother and your father, is understood to mean not only honor, but respect, be obedient to, you can almost, the word fear <laughs> there sounds funny, but it, it's a reverence for I think that's the type of fear we're talking about, that it's a commandment given to us with respect to our earthly fathers, and it's supposed to be a commandment given to us with respect to our heavenly father, God in heaven, that we're supposed to be reverent, respect, and love. And as you say, you only have half the story if you have just the love. If you had loved your father but didn't respect or revere your father, it would be a very different type of love. When we're brought up, when we're young men, there were some things our parents told us that we better not do or else. Right. Right? And, uh, you know, you touch that, you're going to get burned. Or if you if you do that, you're going to get spanked or how, whatever the discipline was. In the, you know, mm-hmm. for me, it was you do that, you get peeled off the wall later. You know, it's good. <laughs> you know, it's good. You're going to pay for it. So that, okay, so I'm not going to do that because I don't want to get hurt. Servile fear. Right. In time, we mature. I don't want to do that because I want my dad to respect me. I want my dad to love me. I want my dad to trust me. That's filial. But we never must lose that little kernel of servile. Even now you and I are adults. Still, sometimes we can be tempted to do things that could put us into hell. Right. And sometimes we need that voice that says, you do that and you'll spend eternity apart from God. It's a both and. That's the... The last, the eternity away from God, I put myself back in my shoes as a child, and if I was four years old and somebody said, I'm going to take you away from your father and be forever outside of his presence, I would be petrified, okay? I love him. 
be the fear of the loss of communion with him would have been terrible. Mm-hmm. Frankly, it would still be today. I love my father so much, and Dad, I hope you watch this someday, and, and you know that. But it is so with God. It's the, the thing to be petrified of is the fear of being eternally separated from him. And in God's mercy, thank God, he's given us the tools to avoid that because I don't believe that God banishes anybody to hell, although hell, hell is real. It's there, but we banish ourselves. We choose it. Yeah. We choose it yep. um, by, by not choosing him. Yep. Um, the other thing I think is, and it goes hand in hand with that, is repentance. Okay, People forget about repentance. In order to be truly repentant, you have to be sorry for what you did. In order to be sorry for what you did, you have to feel like you did something wrong. Okay, So you either have to feel like you did something that was not contrary to the love of God or to the respect of God. Um, interestingly, that's the very next thing that happens in this verse. He goes from, do you not fear God, right? to turning to God really in repentance and says, Jesus, right, remember me, okay? God's salvation plan for mankind has never changed. We know that. Hebrew says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you go back to the Old Testament, let's go back to scriptural Judaism, and you can throw in some Talmud if you like, you'll say that to be right with God required four things, faith in God, according to the Talmud and and implied by the scriptures, was a belief in the coming of the Messiah, sacrifice for the atonement of sin, and repentance for sin. You didn't get there with three out of four, two out of four, to one of four. You needed all four things. Interestingly enough, today in the New Covenant, it's exactly the same thing. We need a faith in God. We need a faith in the Messiah, who we believe is coming and is coming again. We're praying for him to come again. We need sacrifice, but we believe that the sacrifice, I don't want to put, I want to put a pin in sacrifice. We <laughs> believe we have sacrifice because we believe that the sacrifice was A, once and forever completed and fulfilled by Christ, but also believe that the Eucharist is making present for us the sacrifice. All right? By the way, that is continuing until he returns. You know, in other words, the sacrifice of the Eucharist isn't forever, it's until he returns. Okay, but so it's going to continue until, until Jesus returns. And then lastly, repentance. We need to be repentant for our sins, still even today as this thief on the cross was. One of the things in rabbinical Judaism, interestingly enough, is with the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD, there's no longer any possibility of sacrifice. Hmm. So you can have faith. They do, absolutely. Most Jews, I will say sadly not all, but most Jews, at least Orthodox Jews, are still praying for the coming of the Messiah. Maimonides is included as one of the principles of Judaism, but it's been lost but for most. And repentance is absolutely, absolutely, rabbinic Judaism is a tremendous, to credit, emphasis on good deeds and repentance for sin. What's missing is sacrifice, because they can't sacrifice any longer under the temple, and they don't accept the sacrifice of Yeshua. Yep. This wonderful, as you're talking about repentance, the statement by this, the man on the cross, is is a model for repentance. By you begin with this fear of God. You, you, that's got to be there in your mm-hmm. somewhere in your conscience that you've got to know that there's not a thing in our life that is hid from God, right? So there's the fear of God. We know that He sees, and we recognize that though Christ died without sin. We deserve it. Right. That's in, we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We, we we recognize it about ourselves, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then we turn to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What is beautiful, I think, I love that confession, is that instead of him uh, going through the list. Of all the things he's done wrong, he just surrendered mm-hmm. to Jesus. Right. Lord, it, left it up to Jesus. You know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, the, the humility of that, of just giving his life to Christ, not putting any um, constraints on what he wants right. Jesus no to conditions. do for him. You know, there we are, Christ. And now that statement, though, has led to a lot of theological conundrums for folk. Right? I mean, the, what does it mean amongst Calvinists? And uh, what about, you know, he wasn't baptized sure. for some, you know, all the different, the different issues. Um, but how did you as a former, well, as a fulfilled Jew, as, as a Catholic, understand then his answer to the man? Jesus' answer to the man. Yes. Atonement for sin. And uh, also very validating of the idea that we retain consciousness as a person 
in heaven. Because you'll notice he says, which is a very Jewish idea, today you will be with me in paradise. Present tense, you will. You will continue to exist. God said he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. When Moses and Elijah appear on the transfiguration, very much aware of what's going on, Jews, and again, I'm careful how I say this because there's a lot of thoughts within Judaism, but, but for the most part, Judaism and Talmud supports the idea that when we die, you can pray that those who have deceased through intercessory prayer can pray for you. The prayers of the righteous are powerful. Very Catholic doctrine, not much of a Protestant doctrine. But I think this is supportive of that. This, this thief is told by God himself, by Jesus, that he will be with, will be, present tense, with Jesus in paradise. Um, very much alive. Now, it was my un, 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 impression that for a good part of uh, the Jewish history, they weren't quite clear on what was going to happen after death, right? This is and true. then there were some divided views amongst the Sadducees and Pharisees during Christ's own time. Yes. Uh, Sadducees disavowed the possibility of a resurrection, um, generally only believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Moses, and did not treat the books of the prophets and other writings as canonical. Pharisees believed in the resurrection. That was the great debate. Um, even within Judaism, Pharisaic Judaism or Rabbinic Judaism today, to survive, there's an ongoing healthy debate as to what the afterlife is like. In yeah. the Talmud, which was the ancient writings of the Jews, you'll see that there's a fair amount of emphasis on the afterlife. But then after about three or four hundred years of the time of Christ, it kind of dissipates. And maybe that was intended to contrast with Christianity. I don't know. Um, but you know, look, we as Jews pray the Kaddish for the deceased for 11 months, and that's a prayer for the purification of the soul before it enters into heaven. So the concept of sins being forgiven after death from Maccabees is there for a reason. Um, and um, it's, I said, back to this verse again, to me, very powerful verse on, on all those levels, the possibility of salvation, the possibility of coming to know Christ at the end of our lives, the possibility of eternal life. Yeah, the, that verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I mean, that connects with, with even the Jewish prayer time of the day. I mean, this this unique uh, time. But it, it also makes me, again, I wish we had more time to, to talk, Brian, but it reminds me that for all of us, you know, there comes an hour, right? It's <laughs> a different hour for all of us, but for some, all of us it comes an hour. And as you said, as the darkness was approaching the, and you know, end of the day was occurring, the day was ending, the time was drawing nigh. Yeah, these stories were preachable in the early days of the church after Christ had risen and they got the church spreading out. That's why they remembered these stories, because they were preachable to people's lives. Well, Brian, thank you so much for, for joining us on the program. It was a real pleasure, and both for your witness, and, and we also ask your blessing on your, your family and your continued work. All of you, thank you for joining us on this program. I hope this was an encouragement to you. Uh, I think Brian reminds us of our Jewish roots. Let's appreciate them, because then we can appreciate our faith in its fullness. God bless you. See you soon.